Jesus is both Lord and Savior. Therefore, you should reject sin and submit to Jesus. Well, some of you, most of you, maybe, have probably heard of the recently deceased pastor, uh, Tim Keller. Been blessed by his teaching, his, um, his books. I think of all the people we lost in, in, in 2023, Tim Keller might be one of, the, one of the ones that we miss the most. Um, Tim Keller, he pastored a church that was in Manhattan, in New York, in the, in the state of New, in, in New York City. And uh, I know all of you have heard of New York. Um, when most people think of New York, they probably don't think, oh, they have a good church in New York. Um, typically, when we think about New York, what do we think about? Money? We think about fashion? Maybe we think about Broadway? Actually, Manhattan might be the last place that somebody would choose if they wanted to plant and grow a church. The place is just too antagonistic to the Bible. And that's why Tim Keller, after planting his church there in Manhattan, he did a very bold and surprising thing every Sunday. After the benediction, after the service ended, he would say, and I'm quoting him, he would say, anyone who would like to ask a question about something in the sermon or in the service or about our church or Christianity in general, you are invited to stay here and ask me those questions. And so immediately after the postlude, Tim Keller would conduct a 40-minute Q&A right there in front of the podium, right after church. And they would typically have about 50 or 30 to 150 people each Sunday just asking him questions after church about, about all of those things. So isn't that a cool way to help people who aren't familiar with Christianity to learn about the faith? It's right after the sermon, right after the, right after the, the service. It's also a great way to help Christians to learn how to answer common questions about, their, about the Christian faith. And Tim Keller, he was one of the great thinkers and teachers of his generations of pastors. How cool would it be to hear his answers to these questions asked in real time? But what if it wasn't Tim Keller? What if the person answering the questions was Jesus himself. Is there a question that you would like to ask Jesus? What would that question be? Well, perhaps that can be the first of your discussion questions. If you go to lunch with another church member or if you go home with your family, you can say, you could share, what if you could ask Jesus anything? What would you ask him? And also today, you probably didn't realize it, but I'm going to invite you to watch Jesus doing such a Q&A. This Q&A, it's not going to happen in a church gathering. 
It actually happens in the temple of the Jews in the city of Jerusalem. And similar to Tim Keller's Q&As, this one is going to happen right after Jesus was preaching. And also similar to Keller's Q&A, Jesus is going to be asked questions by some hostile skeptics. They want to trap Jesus with their questions. And so as we study Luke chapter 20 today, we're going to see four questions asked. These four questions form the outline of chapter 20. And so if you're taking notes, please um, write down the four questions, which are all the, also the four points of the sermon. The first question is the question of Jesus's authority. So we see that in verses 1 to 18, Jesus's authority. The second question is the question of Caesar's authority. So we'll see that in, chapter, in verses 19 to 40, Caesar's authority. And uh, if you need spell check for Caesar, it's C-A-E-S-A-R. Third, the, the third question is the question of the resurrection. The question of the resurrection, that's t- verses 27 to 40. And the fourth and final question is the question of Christ. The question of the Christ. That's verses 41 to 47. So when we take in today all Jesus' answers to these questions and summarize them, we'll see one, mo- one main point. And here's the main point that we're going to see today. That Jesus is both Lord and Savior. Therefore, you should reject sin and submit to Jesus. Jesus is both Lord and Savior. Therefore, you should reject sin and submit to Jesus. Before we dive into God's Word together, will you you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for speaking to us through your Word. We thank you for your spirit, your Holy Spirit, that illumines our hearts to your word. Lord, when we ask God that you do that today, help us to to understand your word, to hear it, and to respond in obedience and worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we're in chapter 20 of the Gospel of Luke. And if you're new to the Bible... The Gospel of Luke is one of the 66 books of the Bible. There's 66 smaller books in the Bible, and the Gospel of Luke is one of them. There's four books in the Bible which are called Gospels. There's the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. And each of these Gospels tells the same story. That is the story of Jesus' life. But each Gospel tells Jesus' story in a different way. So the Gospel of Luke, it also tells the story of Jesus' life, and there's 24 chapters in the Gospel of Luke. Today we're already at chapter 20, and so we're getting towards the end of the story. In the previous chapter, Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital of Israel at that time. It was the place where the king of Israel was supposed to reign on his throne. And Jerusalem was also the location of God's temple. So in our previous chapter, chapter 19, we see Jesus vividly portrayed as the king who has come into his capital. And not only that, chapter 19, in Luke chapter 19, he claims that Jesus is 
the, is God, God who has come into his temple. And so we see that the divine King Jesus has arrived in his capital and in his temple. And now the setting is set for this Q&A. So it's time for the first question, the question of Jesus's authority. Please follow along as I read verses 1 to 18. Verses 1 to 8. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, "Tell us by what authority do you by what authority you do these things?" Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I, will, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So verse 1 picks up where chapter 19 left off. Listen to how chapter 19 ends. It says, And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And so we see Jesus in the temple teaching. The chief, the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men were seeking to destroy him. Who are these people? They're the leaders of the Jews. The chief priests rule the temple. The scribes were the Bible teachers of the Jewish people, and the elders were other leaders. So this is a showdown between Jesus and the other Jewish authorities. Now, all of those leaders, the other leaders, they derive their authority from well-established systems or families, being born into the right family. But then we see Jesus coming from the countryside, from the countryside of Galilee into Jerusalem. And so these leaders, they think that they can use their lineages of authority to get rid of Jesus like someone flicking off a fly. Jesus, where did you get your degree? Who are your parents? What in the world gives you the right to come in here claiming to be king of the Jews? Who gave you this authority? And they were expecting Jesus to answer in one of two ways, either from God or from man. And look how Jesus responds in verse 3. Without hesitating, he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Jesus here, he's pointing to another person who claimed to be from God. That was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was God's prophet. The first several chapters of the Gospel of Luke are all about John's birth and Jesus' birth and their callings. And so Luke shows us in many ways how God sent John as the prophet, as his prophet, to announce the coming of Jesus Christ. So if you read the beginning of the book of Luke, you know that John's baptism is from God. And then in Luke chapter 7, verse 30, it says, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. 
So it was known by Jesus and all of Israel that these leaders, they didn't accept John's, that John's baptism was from God. And so what is Jesus doing here? He's saying, you guys have rejected that John was sent by God. What's the point in telling you also that I am sent by God? And it's also here where we see the true power behind the, the authority of these leaders. Look how they respond to Jesus' question. It's obvious by their response that the power behind their authority is not God but man. They depend on the favor of the people so that they can stay in power. Verse 6, it says, They discussed it with each other, with one another saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they, so they said, I do not know. And then Jesus tells them, Neither will I tell you by what, by what authority I do these things. But he's actually going to tell them in this next parable, this next story. He's going to tell them exactly where his authority comes from, but he's also going to tell them much more than that. Listen to verses 9 to 18. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that our inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked at them directly and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So in this parable, what does the vineyard symbolize? It's the nation of Israel. The vineyard is the nation of Israel. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, God often referred to Israel as a vine or a vineyard. Who is the man who planted the vineyard? The man symbolizes God. God is the one who planted the Israelites in their land so that they could flourish. So who are the tenants? The tenants are the leaders of the Israelites. They are the exact group of people who are confronting Jesus right now. Jesus is telling these leaders a story about themselves. Who are the servants that God sends to talk to the leaders of Israel? These are God's prophets. Throughout Israel's history, God has sent prophets to the leaders of Israel. And the job of the prophets was to call the Israels to return to God and to his covenant. Notice starting in verse 10 that there's a violent progression in verse 10. In the way that the Israelites treat, the Israelite leaders treat God's people. In verse 10 we see that they beat the first prophet. 
in verse 11, they also beat him, but this time they treat him shamefully. And in verse 12, they, they wound him, the, the third prophet, and they cast him out. And so the, Israel, the Israelite leaders, they had a history of mistreating God's prophets. And do you know who else was one of the prophets sent by God? John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, it gives an example of the message that God sent John to speak to the people. And so John said to the crowds, he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Did you catch that? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so it's no coincidence that John the Baptist is sent by God and he's telling Israel to bear fruit, just like in this parable here. So how does this parable end? It ends with lunacy. The tenants, they actually think that by killing the son of the vineyard owner, that they'll be able to keep the vineyard for, the, for themselves. And so what is Jesus telling these leaders with this parable? He's saying, your authority has come from God. My authority has also come from God. But you want to reject my authority. Not only that, you want to kill me, the Son of God, so that you can hold on to your position and your possessions. Jesus is showing his opponents their selfish hearts. He's also showing them their devastating future if they don't turn from their sin. What is their future? In verse 16, it says, God will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyards, vineyard to others. And I love the response of the people when they hear the story. What do they say? They say, surely not. And then Jesus uses the Old Testament scriptures to prove that he is the son and that many in Israel would reject the son of God. That's why Jesus says, what then is it, is it that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So that is the full answer that Jesus gives to the leaders who come and question his authority. Now it's fun to see Jesus put these leaders in their place, isn't it? But it's not fun when you realize that by nature, we are exactly as rebellious and self-serving as these leaders are who reject Jesus. What do I mean? Well, these guys, these leaders, they're sinners like everyone else, like you and me. But they're just very public sinners. They're very public people who are publicly rejecting Jesus as authority. But if you think about it, how often do you find yourself rejecting Jesus' authority? so that you can hold on to the things that you want to, so that you can continue to just do the things that you want to do. Are you rejecting the cornerstone? These rulers, they rejected Jesus so that they could hold on to their positions. What are the things in your life that are causing you to reject Jesus? Is it a certain relationship is it your job? Is your job causing you to ignore Jesus' authority? Maybe it's your ministry. Whatever the thing is, God is promising you 
something much more better than that thing. I'm always helped by the reminder from the missionary Jim Elliott who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Let's turn our attention to the second question, Caesar's authority. The question of Caesar's authority. Please listen as I read verses 19 to 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it, not law, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he had said, in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Having failed to discredit Jesus by questioning his authority, they attempt to catch him with a political question, a political dilemma. Israel, at the time of Jesus, had been conquered by the Roman Empire. God's people chafed under this foreign occupation. Certain Israeli patriots had previously declared that paying tribute to the Roman emperor was equivalent to idolatry. They, so they asked Jesus here an either-or question. Both answers would have gotten Jesus in big trouble. On one hand, if Jesus had said, according to the Mosaic law, it's okay to give tribute to Caesar, he would have lost credibility with his countrymen. The scribes could dismiss him as a traitor to his country. But they really hoped that Jesus was going to say that it's wrong to give tribute to Caesar. If Jesus expressed this opinion, then they could quickly deliver Jesus over to the Romans for execution. There's something very familiar about this situation here, isn't it? Say one wrong word and your enemies will be able to destroy you. Jesus had to be very careful not to say the wrong thing. But at the same time, it doesn't look like this situation was very difficult for Jesus at all. Once again, without hesitation, Jesus gave an answer that silenced his enemies. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This statement to the polytheistic Roman ears would sound, some, would sound like something they could totally accept, right? Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give to God the things that are God. They say, the Romans say, okay, that sounds good. At the same time, the same sentence means something completely different to the Jewish listener. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. To the Jewish ear, this is almost poking fun at Caesar by pointing out that Caesar is only a man who also belongs to God. There's nothing that Jesus' enemies could do with that answer. At this point, the scribes and the chief priests, they gave up on the questions. 
Now, the phrase, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, it also communicates an important biblical teaching on the role of government in society. In the book of Romans, chapter 13, the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, he writes this in verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And in verse 7, Paul writes, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So according to Christ, what do we owe our government leaders? We owe them taxes. We owe them revenue. We owe them honor. And we owe them respect. And people in every country can probably find reasons why they think they owe nothing to their government. But there's a problem with that line of thinking. Because if there was ever a government that didn't deserve honor or taxes, it would be the Roman Empire as they ruled over Israel. These guys were foreign invaders, and they were idolatrous Gentiles. Yet Paul says specifically about the Roman Empire, there is no authority except that which has been instituted by God. Be subject to the governing authorities. So render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. One of the ways that we as Christians respond to God's teaching is by praying for our leaders over us, which is what we just did a few minutes ago. That's why when we gather on, oh, in 1 Timothy, Paul wrote, he wrote that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for those who are in high positions. And so that's why when we gather on Sundays as members of the church, we are coming together to worship God. One of the ways that we serve God is by praying for the governing authorities over us. Let's consider now the third question in our passage. It's the question of the resurrection. I'll start reading in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared ask him any question. 
And so we see the Sadducees come and ask a question. Who are the Sadducees? The Sadducees, they were a group of priests who ruled over the temple and other parts of the Jewish government. They retained their power in Jerusalem because they cooperated with the Romans. And so they also used their positions of power to gain more power, to gain more wealth, influence. And so in verse 27, Luke tells us something about their beliefs, the beliefs of the Sadducees. These Jewish priests, they denied that there was a resurrection. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might wonder, how could they deny a resurrection? We see the resurrection referred often to in the Psalms and in the prophets. But the Sadducees, they didn't accept the Psalms or the prophets as part of the scriptures. They only accepted the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the name of the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so that's called the Pentateuch, and that's all that the Sadducees accepted as the, as the word of God, as the scriptures. And so they also claimed that the first five books of the Pentateuch don't teach a resurrection. Besides their scriptural reasons, it's easy to imagine why they didn't like the concept of the afterlife or the resurrection. These guys were wealthy and comfortable in their place in society. And so they might have asked, why do I need an afterlife if things are going so well for me right here on earth? So they come up to Jesus in the temple, and they have their biblical proof, the biblical text to them that proves that the Bible teaches against the resurrection. So they point to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 6, and I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 6, it reads, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed, shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. That is the commandment in the Mosaic law then the Sadducees are using this and they're saying, what if seven brothers all take this woman as a wife? If there was actually a resurrection, then whose wife would she be? So their point is, there can be no resurrection. Otherwise, God wouldn't have given this kind of law to Israel. It doesn't make sense. It excludes a resurrection. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it, their point? But Jesus points out that they're wrong. They're wrong because they assume that in the next life, the next age, is going to be exactly the same as our current age. The next age is the same as this age, but it's not. One difference between this life and the next life is that in the next life, there will be no more marriage. And if there's no more marriage... Then the, whole, then the Sadducees' whole argument is shot. But Jesus doesn't stop there. The Sadducees, they've lost their biblical proof against the resurrection, and now Jesus is going to give them biblical proof also from the Pentateuch for the resurrection. In verse 37, Jesus says, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, 
in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So it's similar to as if someone's father has passed away, somebody's father has died. And then an old man comes up and says, I'm a good friend of your dad's. That's not grammatically correct. The old man should have come up and said, I was a good friend of your dad's, of your father. In the same way, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead, God should have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But since God purposely said it, using the present tense, it obviously means that they must still be alive. And if they're alive again, then there must be a resurrection. And now Jesus has forced these Sadducees to grapple with the reality of the resurrection. And what a blessing to be forced to grapple with the reality of the resurrection. The Sadducees, in rejecting the resurrection, were going to miss the kingdom of God. But what about you? Have you grappled with the truth that God will one day raise you from the dead? And that after judgment, you will either go to eternal life or eternal death? How much does the reality of the next age affect your life today? Your life right now? Even if it's just considering what Jesus said about marriage in the next life or the lack of marriage in the next life. What does that mean for our marriages in this life? Some of us are married here. What does it mean? It means that our marriages are not ultimate. They're not eternal. If you're married, then your spouse is not going to be your spouse eternally. But he or she will eternally be your brother or your sister. So I think about this time with Chris, I think about this sometimes with Christine. This is my sister. This is my sister in Christ for eternity. So if you are somebody's spouse in this age, God has put you in a unique place and you have the opportunity to help them spiritually in this life. What a unique role or place that God has given me to help Christine, my sister in Christ, for eternity, and vice versa. If you are single, sometimes we forget, when we forget about the resurrection and the next life, it's easy to see marriage as the ultimate goal. The world wants us to see marriage. Hollywood wants us to see that relationship as the ultimate goal, and they lived happily ever after forever, right? And so forgetting the resurrection causes us to lose perspective on marriage. Marriage can be a really good thing, but in light of eternity, marriage is not everything. What is really important in this life? It's growing as a disciple of Christ. It's making disciples of Christ. Marriage helps some people in their discipling. But the Bible also teaches that singleness is a really important way of life for making disciples and for growing as a disciple. Grappling with the resurrection 
and its implications on our life doesn't just affect marriage and singleness. It should affect everything. If we believe in the next life, this will affect how we suffer in this life. It will affect how we use our money in this life. It will affect our attitude towards work. It'll affect everything. So do you believe in the resurrection? Your life will show it. Well, our fourth and final question today, it doesn't come from Jesus' enemies. It comes from Jesus himself. By this point, Jesus has silenced everyone. And so he asks a question of his own. It's the question of the Christ. I'm reading from verse 41. It says, But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes, and love greetings in the marketplace, and the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation." So the question that Jesus asked is this, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? So Jesus is pointing out a curious problem in a psalm that's about the Messiah. It's Psalm 110 in our Bibles. You see, because, because there were many prophecies about the, the Messiah who was to come in the Bible, all the Jews, they knew that the Messiah must be the offspring of David, King David. One of the most important prophecies about the Messiah is this one. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, God gave this promise to David. David was the great king of Israel. And in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 12 to 13, God made a promise to David. He said this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie, with, lie down with your fathers, I will, raise up for you, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But the problem going back to Psalm 110, is that David, he's going, to, he's going to sing a song or write a prayer about this future messianic king, and in the psalm, he's going to call his offspring Lord. And in Hebrew culture, that doesn't make sense. You would never call your son or your grandson or your offspring Lord. It doesn't make sense unless the Christ, it doesn't make sense if Christ is simply a normal human offspring of David. And that's Jesus's point. The Christ is certainly the son of David. He was an offspring of the Davidic line, of the line of Judah. But Jesus was more than that. 
He was the son of David, but he was more than that. Psalm 110 also says that Jesus is the eternal Melchizedek. Jesus is the king of righteousness who has no beginning and no end. Therefore, Jesus, he's the eternal son of God, which means that Jesus was before David. And so it is proper that David referred to Christ as his Lord. So after answering the questions of his enemies, Jesus, in his kindness, he wanted to tell them more about who he was. But he also needed the people to know who the scribes were. Who are, your, who are, your, who are these Bible teachers that you respect, that you, that you listen to, that you follow? Who are the scribes? The scribes were ones they needed to beware of. They needed to be careful with these scribes. Why? Jesus said, they like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense they make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. In short, the scribes are sinners. But what makes the scribes different from every other sinner the only thing that makes them different was their position. They were normal, sinful humans who happened to be in positions of spiritual leadership. What did the scribes need at that moment? What did they need? They needed to see their sin. And they needed to see their Savior. And this is exactly what you and I need. Do you see your sin? Jesus can help you to see your sin. When you read about his life, you see Jesus' perfect love. You see the kind of person that God created you to be. A person with love like Jesus. But then you also see how different Jesus in his love is from you. Jesus loves those who hate him. Do you love those who hate you? Jesus always tells the truth. Do you always tell the truth? Jesus lived a life of service and sacrifice to others. Do you? If your answer to any of these questions is no, if you don't always love your enemies, if you don't always tell the truth, if you don't always serve and sacrifice for those around you, then I have good news for you today. You are seeing your sins. And Jesus came to save you from all your sins. He came to solve your sin problem, save you from your sins. If you keep reading on in the book of Luke, what will you see? We will see that these very enemies that are asking Jesus questions, they eventually figure out how to arrest Jesus and hand him over to the Romans. And the Romans crucified Jesus. They nailed him to a cross, executed him on the cross. But even from our text today, we can see that Jesus wasn't just a victim of the Romans or the Jews. Jesus, as the Savior, he came into Jerusalem to die on the cross. He came into Jerusalem to accomplish his mission 
so that he could die for the sins of mankind. He died for your sins and he died for my sins. And if you keep reading in the book of Luke, you'll also see that after three days in the grave, God rose Jesus from the dead. God showed that the resurrection is real. He proved that, the son, that Jesus is the Son of God, and he proclaimed through that resurrection justification for all those who will turn from their sin and turn to Christ. So my prayer for you today is that the Spirit of Jesus will show you your sin and will show you your Savior. We must conclude. I began the sermon talking about Tim Keller and the Q&A that he would have after his church service. We then saw that Jesus also experienced a type of public questioning from his enemies. And the purpose of both Keller's Q&A, the question of Jesus' answers, is to show you that Jesus is both Lord and Savior, and that you should reject sin and submit to Jesus. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this great salvation. Lord, you save us from sin. Lord, you save us from your wrath, and you reconcile us to you through the work of your Son, Jesus. Lord, thank you for our rest that we have in Jesus. Thank you for our hope that we have in the resurrection. Thank you for your truth that guides us. Thank you for the peace that comes from knowing the death and the resurrection of Christ, our salvation. Lord, we glory in your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.